You're listening to the Van Moody Podcast. Our passion is transforming the world by transforming lives. In today's episode, Bishop Van Moody uses the story of Job to explain that pain can be a powerful platform to grow our faith and show God's glory to the world around us. Let's get started. Good morning, good morning, good morning, family. God bless each and every one of you. It is once again a joy to greet all of our TWC family, wherever you are joining us from, literally around our country and maybe even around the world. God bless you. It's a joy to welcome you in your homes into the presence of God. And we are here at our Derby campus just full because the presence of the Lord is here. And my sincere prayer is that that same power and that same presence is greeting you, reaching you right where you are. Maybe you're on the beach somewhere, maybe you're in your home, or maybe you're traveling in your car. Our sincere prayer is that the power of God is meeting you right where you are. I want to give a very special shout out this morning to a new family that's joined our faith community all the way in Fontana, California. I want to say God bless you to Dante and Dominique Cooper. They sent me a really, really precious email the other day about just how the worship center has impacted their life and how excited they are all the way in Fontana, California to be a part of our church family. And they sent such a precious family photo and uh, just really warmed my heart. And I told them that I wanted to give them a special shout out. And so uh, to the Cooper family, God bless you. And to all of the amazing families that make up our great faith community, God bless you. I want you to grab your Bible. I want you to open up the TWC app because we're starting a brand new teaching series this morning. And I'm so excited to share the word of God with you. And I want you to meet me in the Old Testament book of Job, the Old Testament book of Job. And as we do each week, our teaching notes are out there for you on the TWC app. And I'm excited to jump into this teaching series, Job chapter 1, verse number 8. Job chapter 1, verse number 8. It says, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Our Father and our God, we are grateful for the power of your word and for your presence. And so, Lord, open our hearts. Help us to understand what you're doing in a greater way, even in the midst of what on the surface looks so problematic. God, help us to understand your greater purpose. Father, as we come to this book, open our hearts to receive your word in the mighty name of Jesus. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. I'm so excited to start this new series of teaching, um, What is God Doing? And by way of our first installment of this series on this Sunday morning, um, as we enter into this book of Job, I want to talk for a few moments really with not just the series title in mind, but 
a particular question in mind, and that is, why, God? Why? Now, as you can probably tell by the amount of times I've said that I'm so excited, I am really, um, really excited. I've been looking forward to this teaching series for a number of weeks. But I'm also excited about the small groups that are starting on today around this new series. Let me take a second and ask you this, uh, or at least mention this to you, if you haven't already decided to lead a small group, I want to encourage you to, to reconsider doing that because not only in all of this social distancing has that placed greater importance on us getting together and finding and forming community, but we're going to deal with some things in this series that you're going to want to get with family, friends, neighbors, in however socially distant way that you're comfortable with, and you're going to want to talk about it. And so I want to encourage you um, to lead a small group based on this series if you haven't decided to do it already. And it's really simple. Every week um, you'll get a kind of recap video from me that will just kind of have the central idea of that week's teaching. And then there are also some discussion questions that are also going to be posted. And uh, all we're really asking you to do is to gather with um, your friends, family members, however you want to form your group, watch that five-minute recap video that presents the big idea for that week, and just use those discussion questions as an opportunity to talk about um, what we're going to dig into in this series and just have fun being with people uh, because throughout this pandemic, that's something that we have been prevented from doing the way that I know God intends. So I hope that you would um, lean into that and decide to lead a group if you haven't already. Now, in this series, uh, let me give you this disclaimer. I'm not quite sure how long this series is going to be. I've planned for uh, a certain amount of weeks, but we'll just kind of uh, see what happens as we get into it. It may be longer. I'm not quite sure. But I, I can tell you that in the early portions of this series, we're going to be walking through the book of Job. And the book of Job, in many ways, is a manifesto on, on pain and suffering. Uh, I must be honest with you and tell you, we read through the Bible as a church family every year, and our reading plan is out there on the website, and we talk about doing your soap devotion and all of that. But often when we're reading through the Bible every year, I'm kind of tempted to just kind of skip over this book, because this book really, really leans into the subject of, of pain and suffering. And sometimes it's, it's hard to read. Sometimes it's hard to engage. And so there have been a number of years that when I get to the book of Job, I kind of say, oh, my goodness, do I really want to get into this book? And sometimes I'm so tempted to want to skip over it because of the subject matter, because the book of Job is, in my honest opinion, kind of a manifesto on pain and suffering. Now, what's really interesting and significant to note as we get ready to study this book and hear from God through it is that according to theological history, listen to this, the book of Job is the oldest written book of the Bible. So as it relates to the chronological history of when books of the Bible were written, Job is actually the very first book of the Bible that was written. Now, I know that that may seem strange to many of you because we think by virtue of just how the Bible is set up 
chronologically in terms of the order of the books of the Bible, we actually think that Genesis was the first written book, and that's not true. We know that Genesis tells the story of creation, but Genesis was not the first book actually written down. We know that the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were actually written by Moses. And when Moses is called by God to go up on Mount Sinai, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, Moses spends 40 days and 40 nights with God. And this is also when God gives Moses the revelation of everything that we read from Genesis um, through the book of Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible often called the Pentateuch. And so I want you to understand that Moses is given the revelation to write down the first five books of the Bible, but this doesn't happen until Moses goes and communes with God on Mount Sinai. And so we're reading what God gave to Moses, and Moses goes back to the beginning and begins to write everything down, but as it relates to chronological history of when books of the Bible were written, Job was actually written first. Most theologians all agree that the story of Job takes place kind of in the middle um, of the book of Genesis, if you will. And so I want you to understand that while Job um, in your Bibles doesn't show up until much later, it's actually the first book written in the Bible. And so that's an important component and concept that I want you to hold on to because we're going to come back to that, and I really believe that it's going to help you to understand in a greater way the significance of this story and this book. Now, it's interesting to note that the first book that was ever written about, well, let me say it this way, in the Bible in terms of the chronology of when books are written, it's interesting to note that this first book is a book about pain and suffering. On Friday, I had the opportunity to take some of our um, new leaders, Pastor Mark and Pastor April and Pastor Crystal and Pastor Z, and they went with me, and we went over to our first campus. We went over to our campus on Roebuck Parkway, which was the very first building we bought when we were less than a year old as a church. And um, they walked through it with me, and it was an opportunity for me to just tell them a lot about the history of our great church and the moves of God um, throughout the 14 years, almost 15 years of our church's existence. And as we walked through the building, I was sharing with them and said, you know, this is when we had this over here, and this is when we had this over here. And then we went into um, what used to be my office. And I, I talked about, yeah, that was my office, and this was the conference room. But when I looked into what used to be my office, I was, I was reminded of the day that my back went out. And I'll never forget it. I was sitting down, and it was, I believe, a Thursday, and um, all of our dream teamers, we were having a, a gathering that evening, and we had a, a guest pastor, a bishop, uh, who was coming, uh, he had come into town to really just kind of impart into our leaders. And it was an evening a meeting that we were going to have. And I remember I was sitting at my desk, and I was just doing some reading and writing, and when I stood up, um, I collapsed, and I was in excruciating pain. And anybody that knows anything about, about back pain, 
knows that that is uh, arguably the worst kind of pain physically that you could ever be in. I would not wish that kind of pain on my worst enemy. And my back went out and, and nobody was around and, and I was on the floor and I couldn't stand and I was crawling and, and the pain was so bad that it was so hard to move. And I remember that it was close to the time that the meeting was supposed to start and people had already started gathering kind of downstairs in what used to be our multi-purpose space. And I remember that the most that I could do was to pull myself up in a chair and then my wife and a couple of uh, the other men in the church helped me to kind of gingerly walk down the stairs. And uh, while Bishop Love was teaching that whole night, I was sitting in a chair and I was in excruciating pain. Uh, and it was just horrible. And I later found out that um, I had a ruptured disc that was pressing on my sciatic nerve. And the doctor said, you have to have emergency surgery or you're going to um, run the risk of being paralyzed the rest of your life. And I was in my early 30s. And I remember the pain was so severe that I kept asking God, why? Like, why, God? I didn't do anything wrong. You know, you start searching, well, am I in sin? Did I, did, I, did I make a mistake? Lord, did I say something or do something to someone? Because in my mind, immediately I was thinking, well, maybe something is wrong. Or maybe I'm being punished because, God, I'm in my early 30s and I'm, and I'm healthy and I'm doing the Lord's work. And I don't understand why I'm going through this pain. And maybe... You can't identify with my story of physical pain, but maybe you understand the emotional part of the pain. I mean, when we think about the fact that over 40 million people in America have filed for unemployment during this COVID pandemic, when we think about the fact that America alone has lost over 100,000 people to this dreaded virus, many of you know the kind of pain that I'm talking about. And here's the thing about pain. Pain is relative, meaning it, it, it may be different for all of us, but we all can point to our stories or our encounters with, with pain. Pain is, is relative. For me in the story that I was telling you a moment ago, it was the excruciating pain of a ruptured disc that was pressing on my sciatic nerve, but, but maybe for you, the, the pain that you're thinking about or the pain that, that you can identify with in this moment may be the pain of losing your job because pain is relative. For somebody, it, it might be the pain of losing a loved one to COVID-19, or maybe for somebody else, it might be the pain of losing another black man after police kneeled on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Pain is relative. Some seasons of pain and difficulty and trauma are longer than others. Pain is relative, but one of the most important things that we have to understand is this. Pain is unavoidable. It's relative, but it's unavoidable. What do you mean, Bishop? None of us can live a life that skirts around the issue of pain. It doesn't matter how saved you are. It doesn't matter how anointed you are. It doesn't matter how many small groups you lead. It doesn't matter uh, how great you serve. All of us will experience pain and suffering and difficulty in our lives. It cannot be escaped. 
In fact, this is what Jesus was trying to prepare us for in John 16 and verse 33, when Jesus literally says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. He says, listen, in this world you will have trouble. One translation says tribulation. He says, but take heart because I've overcome the world. He says, it's, it's, there's no way that you can live and escape it. And I know that the question that often we raise, and I've raised this question uh, myself, is why don't we just avoid the subject of pain and difficulty altogether? Why don't, why don't we just put our head in the sand, skip this book of the Bible, and, and just go on and talk about happier times? But I, I found when I've asked that question that, that there are some critical reasons why Job and his story and what God is teaching us through it is so important. I've learned that there's a reason why we can't skip this book, why we can't gloss over the subject and hide from it or run from it or act like it doesn't exist. There's a reason why we have to deal with this issue of pain and suffering. And I want to share them with you. Number one, I found that dealing with pain is part of our calling as believers. Dealing with pain and suffering and trauma and difficulty, it's part of our calling as believers. Some of you may remember in Matthew 22 when Jesus is questioned by an expert in the law, and the, the question is, of all of the law of Moses, which is the greatest commandment of Moses? And Jesus responds and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Here's the thing, you can't love yourself well or even love your neighbor without dealing with pain and suffering. So many individuals will go through traumatic experiences or difficult things and become paralyzed by it. Their life literally will stop because of that painful experience. And so you can't ultimately love yourself well if you're not going to deal with pain and suffering. And you absolutely can't love your neighbor well uh, without dealing with pain and suffering. This is why what bothers me the most about what we're going through right now as a country is literally the silence of Christians and Christian leaders on this issue of race. It really bothers me even when people try to cover up and make excuses for people that have added to the problem of race. Why? Because the black community is hurting and suffering, and we've been hurting and suffering since our ancestors were brought here in chains. And the truth of the matter is, if you are going to love us well, as Jesus has commanded us to love each other well, then it also means that you're going to have to deal with our pain. You're going to have to deal with this issue of pain and suffering because that's one of our callings as believers. The Bible says, mourn with those who mourn. The same comfort that we've received, we are to give to others. What does that mean? It means that that's a part of our calling as believers to deal with pain and suffering. But here's the second thing that I've, I've learned is pain is a conduit for God's glory. Pain is a conduit for God's glory. I remember many, many, many years ago when I had an opportunity to meet with with one of my mentors, a man that's made a significant impact on my life. In fact, I would suggest that if it were not for particular messages that he ministered, I don't know that I would even be here in Birmingham. But, but I remember the first time that I had a chance to meet him, and um, he was in Atlanta, and he had invited me to, to have breakfast, breakfast with him. 
And I remember that I, I went to meet him and I was so excited and I had a million questions that I wanted to ask him as, a, as somebody young in the ministry, getting a chance to sit down with their mentor. And I remember that I sat down for breakfast. It was at a really nice swanky hotel. And, and I remember that uh, he came down and he, he sat down and we began to eat and he just began to basically just read my life. He, he looked at me and just kind of in a very prophetic way began to declare what he saw in my life and that God was going to use me to do this and God was going to do this. Just very, very significant. And, and man, I was just so moved by God in that moment. And then he ended and he said, after saying all of the great things that he saw that God was going to do in my life, and he said in his deep baritone kind of voice, he said, but oh how you're going to suffer. And I thought, whoop, time out. <laughs> I thought, now I was with you when you started talking about all of the good stuff that God was going to do, but you lost me the moment you started talking about suffering. I was like, has this guy bumped his head? And he just kept saying, but oh, oh, how you're going to suffer. And I left that breakfast like, what in the world? I didn't get it at first, but I later understood what he was trying to get me to understand. And that's that pain and suffering is a conduit for God's glory. I also later realized that often God won't promote you beyond your tolerance for pain. Because pain is a conduit for God's glory. Many of you may remember in 2010, there was a tragedy in Chile. And 33 miners were trapped half a mile underground, and it was global news. They say that um, around 1 billion, with a B, people watch their rescue on live television. Well, long before they were rescued, they drilled an air vent um, half a mile down to get to the miners that were trapped. And the youngest miner was a 19-year-old boy. His name was Jimmy Sanchez. And what he did was he sent a letter uh, to the surface through that, through that air shaft. He sent a letter to the surface to the people that were gathered there trying to figure out how they were going to get the miners out. And in part of his letter, he said this. He said, there are actually 34 of us down here because God never left us. Another miner a man by the name of Jose Enriquez, who kind of became the lay pastor for the miners that were down there. He was kind of the main one ministering to them and even sharing the gospel with them. After they were all rescued, he wrote a book about the experience, and the book was called The Miracle in the Mine. And one of the things he said in the book was this. He said, God didn't need any doors to get down to the middle of the mine where we were. Every time we called on his name, he came. God was there and he was present. Jose Enriquez calls the 69 days that those miners spent time trapped underground in that mine, he now calls it God's accident because God used their suffering to reveal his glory, and the whole world, one billion plus people, saw it. Because pain is a conduit for God's glory. So now that, that I've given you reason to join me in this book about pain and about suffering, 
Now that we've got a better understanding of why we can't skip this book, I want to invite you to dive in with me into the book of Job. And let's start at Job 1 and 1. It says in Job chapter 1 and in verse 1, it says, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold a feast in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them and When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified, and early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and point out three important things that we have to know as we engage Job and engage this story. You you must know, A, that Job was a good guy. Job was a good guy. The Bible is really clear. It says that he was, one translation says he was blameless and upright. Another translation says that he was a man of integrity. What that literally means is that Job was guiltless, that he was peaceful. I I heard one Bible teacher explain it this way. If John the Baptist and and Mother Teresa got hooked up on eHarmony and had a baby, the baby would be Job because Job was blameless. He was He was upright. He was a man of integrity. But not only was Job a good guy, B, Job was living a good life. Job was living a good life. He was wealthy. Uh, Most Bible scholars suggest, when it says that he had a number of servants, most Bible scholars suggest that Job had about 11,000 people that he was responsible for. 11,000 people under his roof, under his covering, 11,000 mouths to feed daily. Job was wealthy. So wealthy, in fact, that if we put this in today's culture, Job would probably be on the the cover of Forbes magazine. He would uh, be in that top 10 list probably of the wealthiest people in, in, in the world. Job was living a good life. Job was a good guy. He was living a good life, but here's the other thing. See, Job was doing good. Job was doing good. I love it. Job had the gift of prayer. I love it when it says that, that early in the morning, he would, he would lift up burnt offerings. It means um, that that's a, that's a Hebrew idiom or phrase that, that doesn't just point to the time when Job would get up to pray. It also points to the fact that this was his ongoing habit, meaning he did it all the time. And it says that, that he would literally cover his family, that his boys would throw these elaborate parties and, and they were birthday feasts and they would invite their sisters over. And, and after the feast was over, just in case there was something that happened that didn't please God, Job would cover his children in prayer and, and, and have burnt offerings sent up just in case there was anything that his children did that wasn't pleasing unto the Lord because he was that kind of man. Job, Job was, was a good guy. He was, he was wealthy, doing good. He was a man of prayer. And see, this is why what happens next, it's kind of hard for us to wrap our, wrap our head around because 
Because of all of those reasons that I just described, he was a good guy, he was living a good life, he was doing good. But then in verse 6 of Job chapter 1, this is the part that's kind of hard for us to wrap our head around. It says in verse 6 of Job 1, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, well, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. He's blameless and an upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And notice what Satan replies and says, well, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, there's a lot here that we've got to deal with, but one of the things that I want to key in on is when it says that one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. That phraseology in Hebrew, it, it means in essence that Satan was an intruder. It doesn't mean that, that Satan just came swag, you know, out, just walking up into the presence of the Lord with the other angels. No, it, it, it's a kind of Hebrew phraseology, and what it suggests is kind of like if you open your door to go get your mail or to pick up a package and a fly comes in. That, that's, that's kind of what this literally means. Satan, Satan is an intruder. He doesn't walk up into the presence of God as an equal. It's kind of like a fly that got in the house, and that's important because even in the dialogue and in the exchange between God and Satan, this phraseology is very clear. It's hard to see it in the English, but when you go back to the original language, what, what you realize is that God is not talking to Satan like he's an equal. God allows Satan to speak. God in his sovereignty and in his omnipotence, he allows Satan to speak. And that's important as we start this study because you need to believe in a big God and a small devil. A lot of times we give the devil too much credit. Um, we ought to believe in a big God and in a small devil. And even in Job 1, the, the devil is not talking to God like he's an equal, like he's on the same level as God. No, God literally allows him to speak. And then what's even more critical to note is that after chapter 2, Satan is not mentioned in this book again. And so a lot of people you know, look at this book and look at this story and think about, oh my gosh, the enemy, the enemy, the enemy. Satan is only mentioned a few times in the book of Job, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. There are 40-something chapters in the book of Job, and so Satan really only occupies about 5% of this book. Why is this important, Bishop? Because this story and what God is teaching us through it for what we're dealing with today is about something so much bigger. But we, we look at the life of Job, we look at the fact that he was a good guy, that he lived a good life, 
that he was doing good things. And we read this story and we think, well, he didn't deserve any of that, though. This is the struggle when we read this story. We, we, we have this idea of deservedness, and we look at Job. He's a good guy, living a good life, doing good things, and we say, but he didn't deserve this. And this is where we get stuck. When we look at even the things that we've gone through, and many people say, well, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm doing, God, what you want me to do, and I've crossed every T, and I've dotted every I. I don't deserve this. Well, Part of what God is dealing with in this story is God is dismantling this idea of deservedness. Look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43 with me. And Jesus begins to dismantle this idea of deservedness. He says um, in Matthew 5 and verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is saying, because you're righteous, it doesn't mean that you won't get that rain. And then he really goes to the deep end of the pool and dismantles this idea of deservedness in Luke 13 and verse number 1. Go with me there. Luke 13 and verse number 1, and it says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered this way? He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were more guilty than all of the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now let me explain this. The tower of Siloam was kind of like the ancient version of 9-11. There was this tower, and uh, history records that it was poorly built. And uh, one day... Um, there were 18 people near the tower, and the tower literally fell, and it killed all of them. And the question that, that Jesus is posing is he's saying, do, do you think that those 18 people that died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, that they deserved that? He's saying, were, there, were they any more guilty than, than, than other people? And so what he's doing is he's tearing down this idea of deservedness. Because we often have that. Well, God, well, God, they deserve that. I don't because, because I've crossed every T. I've dotted every I. I've done everything that you've asked me to do. I'm a tither. I serve. I, I'm active in my church. So I don't, I don't deserve COVID. I don't deserve to be laid off. And, and Jesus is dismantling this idea because truthfully, the idea of deservedness is not in the economy of God. What Jesus is teaching here is that if we deserve anything, we deserve death because all of us have dropped the ball. Now, scholars call passages like Luke, thir like Luke 13, they call these kind of passages the hard sayings of Christ. They, they call them the hard sayings of Christ because it is, it is hard. It's hard. It's hard sometimes to embrace that. Wait a minute, uh, Jesus, you're trying to say that, that I shouldn't have 
This notion that I deserve a certain thing because of the kind of life that I lived. See, it's hard. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around the fact that sometimes because of the permissive will of God, that that God would allow those 18 people to be crushed under the Tower of Siloam. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around the fact that, that God, we, we didn't prepare for this virus. I don't know if we did anything to even warrant this virus, but, but 100,000 people in America alone have died, have lost their lives. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that, that in the permissive will of God, sometimes really bad things happen to really good people, even of no fault of their own. It seems unfair. It, it seems, seems really unfair. And so, and so we, we have this way of thinking and we think, well, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. And, and it sounds good. And I want you to hear me very carefully. It's logical to think that way, but it's not biblical. According to scripture, this idea of deservedness is not in the economy of God. And you must understand that because when we read the story of Job and we think about Job's uprightness, we think that it is his uprightness, that it's his integrity that should protect him and prevent him from the kind of suffering that hit his life. We, we read Job and say he didn't do anything wrong. And, and we often identify with him and say, but it doesn't make any sense. Or, God, what are you doing? Or why am I going through this? Because we think that, that his uprightness, that his integrity, the fact that he was a good man doing good things, that that should protect him, that that should prevent him from any kind of difficulty or hardship hitting his life. But in actuality, it was Job's faith that produced his pain and suffering. I know I just dropped a bomb right there, so let me, let me step back and let you chew on that for a second. It was Job's faith, listen to me, that produced his pain and his suffering. What are you talking about, Bishop? Now let's come back to where we started. Job chapter 1 and verse 8, because this is the key verse of the entire book. If you get this, you'll understand where we're going over the next several weeks. This is the key. Everything in the book of Job hinges on this verse. Then the Lord, this is Job 1 and 8, let's go back there. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. God, in essence, says to Satan, there's nobody else like Job. He's the best I got. No matter what he goes through, Job will never turn his back on me. If you, if you want to see if mankind will be faithful to me when the storm hits, if you want to see uh, whether or not mankind will be faithful to me when all hell breaks loose, when, when COVID hits, if you want to see the best that mankind has, that they will stay faithful even in the midst of the darkest days and the most difficult times, try Job. See, I used to think, and I got to admit to you, that when 
when I was younger in the gospel and when I was trying to preach Job, I thought I had a good handle on the story. And I recognize now, many, many years later, that, that I didn't really fully have it then. See, I used to think that it was about God removing the hedge of protection. I, I used to think that it was God saying to Satan, well, here, you, you can have them. You can have them. And so God removes the hedge of protection. But that's not what God did. God didn't, God didn't just say, oh, you can have them and remove the hedge of protection. No, 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 no. God literally said, no. Here's Job. See, it wasn't a punishment. It was a promotion. What, what Job went through, it wasn't punitive. It, it was a promotion. God wasn't punishing Job. He was, he was promoting him. He was saying that I know Job, that he's the best I got. And so, and so here, he wasn't saying, here, you can have him. He was saying, no, 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 try him. See, if you get this, it'll change your entire perspective about pain and about difficulty, about challenges, about trauma. It's not so much that God is punishing you, listen to me, is that he thinks so highly of you that he's given you the pain or in his permissive will, he's allowed it to hit your life as a platform to release more of his glory. God wasn't punishing Job. He was promoting him. He was actually, listen to me, raising Job to a place of honor. I know some of you are like, I don't understand where in the world that comes from. Well, I'll show you. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Let's go back to the beginning. My grandmother used to say, Baby, the devil doesn't have any new tricks. And she was so right about it. Because I want you to see this in Genesis chapter 3 in verse number 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. Here's the thing. When Satan slithers in to the garden and tricks Eve, the whole heart of his trick is that he basically says to Eve, God is holding out on you. And, and Eve is quick to believe the worst about God. But maybe he is holding out on me. Maybe he doesn't want us to be like him. And so, so, so she takes of that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and disobeys God and eats of that fruit and gives some to Adam. And that's how sin entered the world because the lie of the enemy was that God's holding out on you. He convinced Eve to believe the worst about God. 
My grandmother was right. He doesn't have any new tricks because he uses the same trick in Job chapter 1. Instead, he flips it. He throws mankind under the bus and he says to God, listen, they won't serve you. God, if, they, if you take everything away from them, if you let COVID hit, if you let unemployment rise, they won't serve you. But what does God do? God does the exact opposite of what Eve does. Eve is quick to believe the worst about God. God is quick to believe the best about us. God says, oh, no, they won't. He says, here, try Job. I know that, that even in the midst of difficulty, he'll still serve me. I know that if you, if you take everything, he'll still give me praise. He'll still honor me. No, 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 no. I believe the best of my creation. It's amazing how even when difficult days come, that God believes the best in us as flawed and as mistake-ridden and as sinful and failure-prone as we are, he still says, but I believe the best in you. I believe that you'll still be faithful. I believe that you won't abandon worship, worship in me, that you'll still live for me, that you'll still love me, that you'll still honor me. This is why... In Job 1 and verse 20 is so significant. It says at this, Job got up, tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord, listen to this, be praised in all of this. Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In that culture, when people shaved their head, it was a sign of deep grief. Job was grieving over the loss of his family, over the loss of his kids, over the loss of his finances. But even in his grieving, he says, God, I'm still going to worship you. God, I'm still going to trust you. That's what God is after. I told you the top of our time together that Job is the oldest book of the Bible, the first book ever written. Could it be that this was the number one point that God wanted us to get? Could it be that this was the biggest lesson that God wanted us to establish at the onset? That it's about being faithful even in the midst of difficulty. We hope you enjoyed this message from Pastor Van Moody. For more information about Van Moody Ministries, please visit vanmoody.org. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed week.